Good morning, Barberton campus. How are we doing this morning? Good. Well, it is a privilege and a pleasure for me to be here. As Josiah said, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors at Norton. I've been there a little over six years. When I started, I had no children. Now my wife, Johanna, and I have three. So my daughter, Maggie, Cooper, and Jenna. And they give uh, their blessings this morning. Uh, because my son asked me where I was going, and I said I was going to another one of our campuses, and his first question was, do they have toys? And I said, yes. He's like, well, that must mean it's a good church. And so uh, they're excited uh, for me to be here. It is a uh, privilege to be here because I, I feel like I've had a unique seat to watch the inception and growth of the Barberton campus. Um, I, I think of three years ago, uh, a little over three years ago, watching kind of the launch and for many years to set up and tear down, uh, for many of you, uh, your entire Saturday uh, in host uh, services at Elementary East to purchasing this property and then the renovation to what we have now is a little bit more comfortable seating than you may have had at Elementary East. I have... Uh, the utmost respect for your campus pastor. I've had the privilege to work alongside of him uh, for many years in the team uh, that you have built here. Uh, we hosted Bible Camp together for many years, and this summer we celebrate Barberton Campus uh, hosting their own Bible Camp where just a few weeks ago there were over 90 kids here. What an amazing beginning of your first ever Bible Camp on your own. And so those things I celebrate with you as I kind of observe and watch, and it's so exciting to be a part uh, together as we live to make Jesus make sense, right? That uh, we're seeking to ignite this gospel-centered mo movement as our vision is to plant 30 campuses in 30 years. And so um, I'm glad to be with you uh, this morning to uh, share as we jump into kind of the series that we've been in. I hope that each of you have had an enjoyable uh, summer of 2017. By a raise of hands, how many of you have or will be shortly taking a summer vacation? I know that there was a group of you uh, that took a family trip to go to Hilton Head. And uh, my family and I happened to be down there right around the same time. It was my first time going to Hilton Head. And with any trip or vacation, there is some sort of excitement and expectancy with which we prepare for that trip. I know for my family and I, it included months of preparation. In March, we began to kind of talk about the possibility of my parents joining us, right? Coercing them with the opportunity to spend a whole week with their grandchildren, right, so that we could have some evenings out as well. And so we decided that we were going to explore the possibility of the Carolinas. And so I began to scour Airbnb, VRBO, uh, for uh, kind of the right vacation spot. My initial kind of search didn't lead to anything that seemed overly aspiring, so I decided that I would make a Facebook post plea to my friends, hoping that someone may have insider connections for a beach house. 
Well, when that didn't lead me to my magic number, which my wife calls is this number that I pluck out of thin air that is often much lower than any reasonable amount that I would like to purchase. For me to enjoy my vacation, I have to have a good deal as well as kind of a, a nice location. So that led me to Groupon for my summer vacation. I don't know about your experiences with Groupon, but um, I've kind of had some hit or miss experiences. And so this, there was a little risk inherent with purchasing a week-long vacation in Groupon, but it ended up being a great time. And uh, as we kind of prepared for our middle of July vacation, uh, there was much preparation in that process. So my wife began to plan proper beach attire. We made sure uh, our van was ready to go, right? I cleared my schedule. I got my list of books that I wanted to take, which is always more ambitious than what it ends up actually being. And so all of us know that experience. And for months prior, I kind of lived with this anticipation of the wee hours of 4 a.m. when we would pull out Saturday morning, July 15th to go on our vacation, right? So this morning, we're going to take a look at an event that will happen in the future that Jesus tells us to live with expectancy in lieu of. We're in the Life of Jesus series, and so throughout this series, we've been taking a look at uh, the prophecy of Jesus as we began, uh, the things that Jesus fulfilled as he has always been God's long-term plan of salvation, right? Then we began to look together at miracles and the significance of those miracles as it relates to what it tells us about Jesus and who he is and his desire for us. And so a few weeks ago, we began looking in particular at the teachings of Jesus or his parables. And so we're going to continue on that this morning. And a parable is basically two Greek words put together, which means to lay alongside. They are small stories which are used to illustrate big ideas. They're often very familiar things for the culture and the setting that Jesus is using to orient us to something unfamiliar. And so we're going to jump into a parable found in Matthew chapter 25. And I am confident that no matter where we're at on our spiritual journey, whether we've been a follower of Jesus for many years or exploring Jesus, that this parable will help us understand a little better, a little clearer who Jesus is, what he plans to do, in the invitation that he offers us. And so you can follow along in your Bibles if you have them or on the screens. We'll start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them wise. The foolish one took their lamps but didn't take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up, and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, 
Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This parable of the ten virgins is found in a larger context of scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. What that basically means was Jesus was on the Mountain of Olives teaching his disciples about his second coming. By second coming, we recognize that Jesus first came as a baby in a manger. God was skin on. But he promised that he would be returning again this time as a conquering king, as a just judge, as an eternal ruler. So starting in Matthew chapter 24, this conversation is going on with his disciples. And Jesus is trying to get this point across to his disciples about the unexpectedness of his return. Because in Matthew 24, we see him telling them very often to keep watch, to be aware of his return. We see in verse 36, it says, Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Six verses later, therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Two verses later, so you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. Now, when we first read this parable, it may seem a little kind of confusing, right? That there's some cultural norms that maybe we're not aware of as it relates to the wedding customs of the day. But one thing without a doubt is that Jesus is illustrating himself as the bridegroom in this parable. In the Old Testament, in the books of Isaiah and Hosea, we see God referring to himself as the husband of Israel. In three separate gospel accounts, two of which Jesus are speaking, another one of the authors, Jesus is describing himself as the bridegroom. We see in the book of Ephesians, that Paul, in the context of kind of giving this marriage illustration, refers to the church as the bride of Christ. And so Jesus is telling this entire parable to illustrate one point that he has been telling them over and over again. That they must live with expectancy related to the suddenness of the second coming, and they must be prepared. Because we see in verse 13 of this parable that there is this word, therefore, which summarizes the parable. And he says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. 
So the big idea of this whole parable is this, and I'd like you to write it down. It'll be on the screen. We should expectantly prepare for and await Jesus' return for his bride. We should expectantly prepare for and await Jesus' return for his bride. Now, as we said, the norm surrounding this kind of parable would be helpful to understand to kind of get some more of its power or the thrust because what happened in the first century is drastically different than what we experience as it relates to a wedding. There was no uh, ceremony where a couple had a middle aisle and the bride would walk down and meet her groom and kind of stand face to face and say, I do. That didn't happen until many years after Jesus rose from the dead. And even in Jewish weddings, uh, these norms are very different from what they have experienced. And so in reading and preparation, I kind of uh, want to give you three C's related to some general concepts of how a Jewish wedding would have been performed. We'll kind of go in depth, but the three C's are covenant, ceremony, and celebration. So the first thing that would happen in a Jewish wedding was the covenant. And what would happen is that the prospective groom would meet with the father of the bride. If they were young, this may have happened by uh, kind of an encouragement of the father of the groom. At times, maybe a servant had gone and looked for a prospective bride. But there would be a meeting with the groom and the father-in-law. Can you imagine over coffee uh, meeting with a potential father-in-law to negotiate what is known as a bride price? So they would sit down, have a meeting, determine an appropriate price with which to go forward in marriage. After this purchase price had been paid, the covenant would be established. In the eyes of the law, they would legally be married. They were what they called betrothed to each other. This often happened before uh, a first date, right? Before uh, a first fight, before any physical intimacy. It wouldn't be uncommon for the bride and the groom to not have met each other. So they would sign a covenant it would be a legal document. The groom would get a copy. The father of the bride would get a copy. A third copy would be stored at the synagogue. So after the covenant had been established, legally married, there would be a period of separation. Often, this period would be at least a year. At times, if they were younger, it could be up to seven years. And so what would happen, the groom would head back to his parents' house, and he would begin preparations on their new home. Often it would be an addition attached to their parents' house. The bride would be preparing herself uh, to become a wife and a mother. And so they would have a year period of separation. And once the house was ready, the groom would communicate with the father of the bride to establish the next stage, which is a ceremony. So after kind of a general time frame had been determined, the groom would leave his house with some groomsmen who had lit torches and they would begin a procession to fetch the bride. They would be going to meet the bride at her 
parents' house. Now, according to Jewish custom, uh, the groom could arrive at any point, even in the middle of the night. There was only this kind of general time frame with which the bride could expect the groom to come. And so we see that the bride would have her 10 bridesmaids in this story. They're called the 10 virgins that would wait with her for the shout of the groom in his party. So as they would get closer, we would hear with the chauffeur, right? The groomsmen shouting out, here comes the bridegroom. He's arrived. Come out to meet the bridegroom. And at that moment, the bridesmaids would take their torches and their lamps and they would go out to join the procession with the groomsmen as the groom and the bride would meet. The bride's face was veiled. They would head off to the bridal chamber where they would consummate the marriage. Now, the wedding party kind of waited outside as this was going on. Can you imagine your wedding night with uh, many onlookers curious of how your proceedings are going? And uh, so after this, they come out and they have this whole formal ceremony where they announce that the marriage has been consummated. And so the wedding party would begin telling all the other wedding guests that the marriage is official, that the third stage needs to begin, and that is a celebration. So the bridal party would all come back together, and they would make their way with these lamps and torches back to the groom's parents' house, where there would be a feast. Now, this just wasn't an evening, an all-day affair. Often, this wedding feast lasted seven days, where they would have family and friends that just celebrated the marriage. And we see this alluded to many times in Scripture. We see Jesus at a wedding feast turning water into wine. We see another parable that Jesus has in Matthew 22, where he talks about a king throwing a feast for his son. And so this was a feast of all feasts, a wedding celebration. Covenant, ceremony, celebration. So when we jump into the parable that we read in Matthew 25, what we're entering in is stage two and three of this wedding ceremony. We're entering into the part of the ceremony and then eventually the celebration. All throughout the series, you've been asking the question, so what? What does this story, what does this information about the life of Jesus mean to me? How should I apply it? What uh, result should I live in response to that? So I have three so what questions for us this morning that I think apply when it comes to this parable. And the first is this. Have I associated myself with the wedding party? Or am I just a wedding crasher? Have I associated myself with the wedding party? Or am I just a wedding crasher? My wife and I will celebrate 10 years of marriage here this January. So our wedding day, January 5th, uh, 2008. Now, our wedding in the preparation for it, uh, family members had many different desires. 
My mother-in-law wanted a sit-down dinner in which she was throwing the party, and she could accommodate about 250 guests. My wife wanted dancing. I wanted a big wedding. I was a college pastor at the time. I had been involved in an undergraduate fraternity. I viewed the wedding ceremony as an opportunity to kind of share about Christ and our life. And so initially, these desires came in a lot of conflict, right? that uh, we were kind of butting heads a little bit, but we came up with a plan to accommodate everyone's wishes. We decided that we would have the ceremony kind of early afternoon, and right after, we would have a cookie and punch reception at the church. We'd be out taking pictures, there was live music, people would be enjoying themselves, and then around dinner time, we would have a second reception where about 250 of the guests would attend. So we had different wedding invitations. We kind of oriented people and communicated with them very differently about which part of the wedding that they would be involved in. Well, needless to say, the, the kind of circumstances surrounding our wedding choice created kind of the opportunity for some wedding crashers. Um, at the first uh, wedding reception at the church, the Cookie and Punts uh, reception, I had a college student who had overheard the opportunity for a dinner reception. So maybe he was thinking free meal. Maybe he wasn't thinking anything of it. He chose to follow some of those people and join us at the reception. My brother-in-law had a close friend who ended up getting called into work, and he wanted to be a part of the festivities. And so he decided that even though he didn't have the invitation, he would join in for a free meal. Now, we can perceive those as maybe innocent, ignorant, or funny. But the parable that we are looking at talks about clearly those who are part of the festivities and those who are not. And there's nothing to joke about when it comes to this circumstance. Because we see that Five of the ten virgins are part of this wedding festivity, and the other five are not. Now, the differences between the ten are not clearly seen at first. Their character didn't differentiate them. Jesus intentionally uses the word virgin to describe their moral uprightness, right? Their character, their integrity their morality. Now, we may think that all 10 of these virgins represent the church. They don't. They represent those affiliated with the church. That five are true followers. The other five are not. Many church members today are depending upon their moral character to get them to heaven. But good character alone will never save us, make us right with God. It is through grace, by faith, which we, we receive acceptance. We see that their character didn't differentiate these virgins. Their intentions didn't differentiate these virgins. They were aware that the bridegroom was coming. They were dressed and prepared for the occasion. They were doctrinally correct, yet they hadn't properly prepared for the occasion. The only difference between these virgins made all the difference in the world. 
and that was that they had no oil. What we see outwardly in not being able to discern the difference, the Lord looks at very different when he sees inwardly. In the Old Testament, oil is represented, symbolized often by that of the Holy Spirit. And what we see is kind of a picture of those who had been professed or kind of made a decision, said yes to Jesus and received his Holy Spirit. Just like the five foolish versions, many in the church today have no spiritual oil. They outwardly have religion, but inwardly do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They have an outward form of godliness, but inwardly haven't trusted the power of God to change their lives. Outwardly, they may speak all the right religious words, but inwardly, they're not abiding by the word of God. Outwardly, they may appear holy, but inwardly, there's no relationship in need for the grace of the Holy One. Now, we may read this story and kind of scratch our heads and think and look at the wise virgins as being selfish. I know that when I read it, I was kind of thinking and processing that as well. But what we see is that oil is not transferable, just as salvation is not transferable to someone else. That each one of us has our own choice whether to align our life with Christ. And no matter how much I try and share with my family or my kids, they need to come to a personal decision themselves to align their life with Christ, to receive his Holy Spirit. We see later on in the parable that the five foolish virgins come back and they knock on the door. And they respond that I never knew you. We see a very similar kind of wording early in Matthew that highlights this same point. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Drive out demons, perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. I never knew you. The way that we are known by God is that we have embraced the reality that God so deeply loves us, that He created us in His image, but we have fallen that we have made mistakes, that we have fallen short of his perfection, that he is holy, that he is set apart, and our sin separates us from God. But it's recognizing that there is nothing ever that we can do or accomplish that will make that relationship right. It's recognizing what God has done through his son Jesus that we have access to an eternal relationship that's renewed and restored with God. 
It's what we call the gospel. The five foolish virgins in the story, as Jesus is highlighting, telling this Jewish audience, is many people that were very religious, but those people that didn't recognize Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life. Do we have the spiritual oil? Have we said yes to Jesus and received his Holy Spirit as a seal, as a promise of redemption for the day with which we await his return? I believe that there's a second question of application that we can take from the parable. And it's this, do I eagerly expect the groom's arrival or do I live as if the bride has been left at the altar? Do I eagerly expect his arrival or do I live as if the bride has been left at the altar? Many of you have probably seen on TV or maybe uh, your YouTube video searching uh, an unfortunate circumstance where a bride or groom is left at the altar. What looks to be a day of joy and celebration turns into a day quickly of despair and discouragement. We can only begin to kind of empathize with this bride or groom that has been left at the altar, hopeless. Stage two, this ceremony is uh, alluding to the second coming of Christ, when Jesus will return for his bride, the church. We are told to await that day with eagerness and excitement. Though no matter the circumstances, we should be prepared, fixing our eyes on Jesus for when he shall return. I find it interesting as seen in the fact that the virgins, all ten of them, are sleeping, that it kind of gives us the idea that there isn't anything in particular we should be expected to do when Jesus returns. They're not kind of um, reprimanded, so to speak, for sleeping as the groom is about to arrive. When we may be working, eating, sleeping, or pursuing uh, leisure activities. Whatever it is must be done in such a way that we don't have to make things right when he returns. Being ready uh, for Christ involves one thing, embracing the gospel but it manifests itself in a way that I can live with hope and assurance for that day. What we know and recognize is that there's only one of two ways in which we'll celebrate that day. For some, it'll be a day of tragedy. For others, it'll be a day of triumph. Because for those that have said yes to Christ, we can Look forward to that day with hope and assurance that God will rescue us, his bride. That he will make things right. That sin's curse is in the process of being removed. That he will take us to be with him. We see this event uh, kind of illustrated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can follow with me starting in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have 
no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. I love how it ends. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those who have no hope, those who have hope and assurance at Christ's return. Yesterday morning, uh, we kind of celebrated the life of a faithful member at the Norton campus. Her name was Reba. She had been battling pancreatic cancer for the last three years. And she went home to be with the Lord uh, earlier this week. And as I'm kind of walking through the calling hours, talking with her husband, Dana, he just couldn't help but share um, the significance of uh, the manner with which Reba operated over these last three years. If in talking to Reba, uh, you, you would recognize that there was pain and struggle, but yet there was this confidence, even amidst the possibility of losing her life, that she would be reu reunited with her Savior and his, her Lord Jesus. All throughout the building was this motto that she lived by, faith, hope, and love. Reba lived with this deep sense of hope, knowing that she'd be reunited with Christ. As a pastor, um, I have the opportunity to be with families during kind of life and death situations. I remember a few months ago getting a call to go to the Barberton Hospital. And there was a family whose uh, wife and mother was on life support. And I remember kind of the room and the environment. Because as they faced pulling the plug, they had uncertainty, a lack of knowledge, of discouragement, despair about what awaited their wife, and their mother. We can live with hope and assurance when we've aligned our life to Christ that we will be with him forever. Right? And it encourages us that those who have not yet aligned to share the good news of the gospel with them so they too can eagerly, with excitement and joy, await that day. I believe there's one final question for us this morning, and it's this. Have I embraced the benefits of marriage, or am I unenthusiastic amidst my engagement? We shared that when a covenant was established, there was often a period of separation, maybe a year or more time. And in this period of separation, the groom would be preparing their dwelling place, He'd be preparing the house with which they would reside. Jesus, when he is talking to his disciples, he is telling them about the place with which he has been preparing them for. We see this in John chapter 14. He's talking to the disciples and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am going. I love that significance that Jesus has been preparing a place for us. God created the heavens and earth in six days. Jesus has been preparing a place for you and I for the last 2,000 years. What a place that must be. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, is quoted as this. We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We're afraid about the jeer of the pie in the sky and being told that we're trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, then Christianity is false for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. When we think about the eternal dwelling place of Scripture, it is a place of joy, of laughter, a place of eternal excitement, a place where we are reunited with Christ, a place where sin's curse has been removed, free from any pain, free from any impurity, free from broken relationships, heartache, struggle. There won't be fighting, anger, hostility towards one another. Second, Peter describes it as the home of righteousness, a place where you and I desire to be a place where God intends to live in unity and community with his creation, a home of righteousness. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. As we invite John back up, I think this idea of keeping watch is as real and prevalent for us as it was for his disciples. Keeping watch means living with that day in mind instead of focusing only on today. It's an awareness and understanding that God has extended a covenant proposal of marriage to each one of us in the form of Jesus. That he has paid the purchase price to be in relationship with us through his blood on the cross. Have you chosen to be in a covenant relationship with Christ? There is this recognition that we should be preparing ourselves for an eternal marriage with Jesus. Are you preparing yourself in a way that what is on his heart is on your heart? Are you living with his agenda, with his mind? Are you becoming like him? 
Are you focused on the things that consume your groom? Are you preparing for your eternal marriage? Do you live with hope and assurance, embracing the benefits of marriage? That no matter what circumstances we may face, job loss, broken relationships, health scares, we can live with this confidence and promise that Jesus will one day make it right. Imagine if we as Grace Church live for that day, not just for today. Imagine the motivation and desire with which we would share with our loved ones and family members. We wouldn't wait to that moment when they had no chance of preparation. But we would want to invite them into this deep hope and assurance that we live our life with. Knowing that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Imagine how God would choose to use Grace Church for his kingdom purposes. To help make Jesus make sense to a lost, hurting, and dying world.